Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, this is Gary Hart. Hello, Gary Hart. This is Paul Holdengraber calling you from The Quarantine Tapes. I am really so delighted you accepted to take my call. Thank you so very much. Um, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure too, and uh, and might I say a, a really tremendous honor. If I may, may start with what might appear banal. Uh, where do I find you, and how have you been living these last five months of of this quarantine? Well, you find me in my home. Uh, 30 miles southwest of Denver and up in the uh, foothills of Colorado about at about 8,000 feet and um, living very happily. My wife and I just celebrated our 63rd wedding anniversary. Mazel tov, and, uh, mazel tov. Congr- congratulations to you. You you nearly mar- <laughs> you nearly married as long as my parents were married, which was 71 years. Oh, my well, we'll go for the record then. Please. And 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 what have you been up to in the in these past five months? How have you been living this moment? Well, like everyone else, um, very much staying at home. I used to travel uh, the United States and the world. Yes. Uh, quite a bit, both in public office as well as uh, in private business. But uh, those days are gone, at least for the time being, and perhaps. Uh, for quite a long time to come. So um, a lot of reading, a lot of writing, and uh, deep involvement in a concerted effort, bipartisan effort to prevent treachery in the forthcoming election. Well, I must tell you, I, I in, in late July, you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, which was entitled, How Powerful is the President? About secret government powers, which you likened to a suspension of the Constitution and a blueprint for dictatorship. Can you tell us more about the magnitude in your view of this present danger? Well, I have had over half a century of experience in matters of national security, intelligence, and related topics, and I had never heard of these powers. And there was an earlier opinion piece in the New York Times in April by scholars at the Brennan Institute for Justice, Brennan Center for Justice at New York University. And they uh, disclosed the existence of uh, upwards of 100 secret powers, that is to say, uh, secrets from the American people, and I suppose um, most other people around the world, but it's secret also from the Congress of the United States and uh, the press of the United States. And so I began to look into it, to talk to friends who had occupied high places in various administrations, and 
uh, ran into two responses. One, these senior cabinet officers said they had never heard of these powers, which amazed me. Incredible. And the other response was no response, meaning uh, people I've known for quite a long time simply did not want to discuss it. So when you run into that, not only secret powers, but mysteries surrounding the secret powers, it uh, makes one inquisitive. So I continue to try to find out as much as I can. But the scholars at the Brennan Center think uh, these powers to be used in times of national emergency do equate to suspension of most constitutional guarantees. And they put power uh, all in the hands of one person, namely the President of the United States. You know, I, I, I read that report, of course, after reading your piece, uh, the Brennan Center for Justice, um, which which outlined 136 statuary powers that have that may become available to the president upon a national emergency. How worried are you that these secret powers might be used between, let us say, October, November, and January? Uh, or or before, actually, maybe next week. Well, let me correct something. It would be one thing if all of these powers were, in fact, as you say, statutory, that is to say, enacted by Congress. But there are only a handful of them that Mm. have been approved by Congress. Most of the others, proclamations, executive orders, and powers yet to be enacted by Congress, that number close to 100, And they are the dangerous ones. They are the secret ones. And Congress has not approved them. So I am extremely worried, particularly in the case of a president who has declared national emergencies seven times already during his presidency and who has already discussed the possibility of suspending the constitutional election. So this is a cause for concern, deep concern on the part of all Americans. What I don't understand, and, and I, I, I suppose um, it's very hard to understand, how is it possible that these powers remain secret? You know, I'm often reminded I, of the wonderful line of Benjamin Franklin, who said that for two people to keep a secret, one has to be dead. Yes, it's a mystery, and I can, cannot answer you. As I said, I served on the military committees and the intelligence committees of the United States Senate. I have been chairman of a whole variety of of committees and commissions at the Department of State and the Department of Defense. And I have had high-level security clearances during all of this, and I had never heard of these secret powers. And as I've indicated, uh, other senior cabinet officers in various administrations have said that they were not aware of them either. So it seems that the only way this could have transitioned 11 administrations, starting with Eisenhower, is if only a very, very small number of people were aware of these powers, national security advisors, people in the White House, perhaps one or two senior officials at the Department of Justice. I mean, what is so frightening is to 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 hear this current president um, speak about these powers. I mean, innuendos, 
a comment that you barely can hear, but if you pay attention, as you have, a very, a, a very present. And so one begins to wonder, you know, is this, a, is he threatening? Is he ready to push, push that button, as it were? Well, keep in mind, this president has said, unlike any other president before him, publicly, I have powers that you are not even aware of. I know. And he said very, he said variations on that half a dozen times. So he is publicly broadcasting his awareness of these secret powers. Uh, and yet, for some reason, the press seems unable or unwilling to press him on what exactly he's talking about. But, but do you think in some way, to some extent, the silence around these secret powers is due to a failure of the media and of Congress? And it took, you know, it took Mr. Gary Hart to write that op-ed for people to at least come to an acknowledgement that those powers exist. Well, I, I claim no particular credit. As I said, I took my cue from the disclosures of the scholars at the Brennan Center who brought this to my attention and to the public's attention. I thought there would be a firestorm of journalistic inquiry uh, pursuing what this was all about, including questions of the president himself uh, as to what he meant about having these ex this extraordinary capability to do anything he wants to do. Uh, if any other president had said that, that would have sent chills up the spine of the First Amendment advocates all over this country. You know, I, I, I keep uh, wondering, Mr. Gary Hart, you know, what does check and balances, checks and balances mean at this moment? Well, it certainly means nothing where this, the Senate is concerned, because the Senate is a, obviously a rubber stamp for the, this president and his party. But um, we, I and others have had conversations with leaders in the House, obviously in the control of the Democratic Party, and there is great interest in the House at um, looking into the matter, whether in that space of 60 days, hearings can be scheduled, subpoenas issued, and um, organization brought to this inquiry. That's pretty short order for a congressional inquiry, and it couldn't be, obviously couldn't be completed before the election. But the benefit of even starting the hearings in the House is to force media coverage and to force public attention on this. And my very practical theory is the more attention is paid to the existence of these secret powers, uh, the less likely they are to be used. It is the fact that there is so little inquiry about it that would tempt a, a particular pres president faced possibly with defeat at the polls to uh, do all kinds of things. Have, have people in the government, I know many of them didn't respond, but have people in the government gotten in touch with you as a result of, of your article? And, and if so, what, what have you been hearing? No elected official, to my knowledge, has called me up. But I have had, and others, friends of mine, have had conversations with 
committee chairs in the House about what could be how organize how hearings could be organized, even on short order, and what questions could be asked, and who should be summoned. So there is there is thought being given to this, but the clock is ticking. This is not new to you. You were on the church committee in the 1970s. I'm wondering, is that a model that can be productively applied to this very moment, Mr. Hart? Well, as you know, I suggested that in the uh, New York Times opinion piece you were kind enough to mention as a prototype for what could be done. I should say for your listeners that the church committee was organized in the aftermath in the 70s of disclosures in the press of excesses at the CIA and FBI. And we were in existence as, as a select Senate committee for close to two years to explore what those excesses were and how we could prevent them from happening in the future. And it, it was a pretty successful exercise in that successive administrations have not undertaken some of the things that were done uh, illegally in the past. A few weeks ago, I spoke with Lawrence Wilkerson, Colin Powell's former chief of staff for these very quarantine tapes. And Mr. Gary Hart, I'd like to read to you something he said and have you react. He, sure. said, he said, the continuation of government, the COG program, is basically in secret, deep secret. Some of the most profound stove-piped special compartmented information you'd ever want to see. Much of what is happening is happening in secret because of post-9-11 maneuvers, statutes, some of them passed in secret too, that allowed this to take place allegedly to fight the terrorists in our midst and across the seas. The global war on terror, in other words, produced not just the Patriot Act, but lots of offspring of that act that are not even known to the American people. They're not known in the sense that they were passed. They're not known in the sense of what they actually do. And they're not known in the sense of who's enforcing them against whom, where and when. And yet, it's all happening. To what extent do you think are you and Lawrence Wilkerson talking about the same thing? Well, we are and we are not. Let me tell you my... Um I, I know the colonel and of him and have enormous respect. Here is the way I understand what happened. This all began in the Cold War in the Eisenhower years, namely the 1950s. And the legitimate concern was if the worst possible thing could happen, namely nuclear exchange between ourselves and the Soviets, and much of our government, and leadership was destroyed in a nuclear attack. How would we go about governing what was left of the country? And so these plans began under the heading, as you said, of continuity of government. How do we continue government under the worst possible circumstances? And of the powers that we know of that were enacted by Congress 
or at least financed and approved by Congress, most of them came out of that Cold War era. Now, the Cold War ended in late in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And so one would think some of these plans would have been put a bit on the shelf, but they were not. They continued under Democratic and Republican administrations. And for close to 10 years, there was no existential threat against America. And then came 9-11. And by the way, I happened to be co-chair of the commission that warned eight months ahead of 9-11 that terrorists were going to attack America and nothing was done. So then George W. Bush finally uh, used some of these continuity of government powers, the mobilization of the military, the nationalization of the National Guard, and protection of airports and things of that sort to respond to 9-11 and prevent any further occurrences. And then I wouldn't say the terrorist threat has gone away. It hasn't. It's still there, but not nearly as urgently as the nuclear threat was. But still, these powers continue and have grown. So what is going on in the world that would cause the uh, Obama and Clinton and other Democratic administrations to join more conservative Republican administrations in adding to these secret powers without discussing them with Congress and the American people. What has gone on? Why? Why, according to you? I mean, I know this is speculation, but you're, you're, you're speculating with knowledge. Well, I don't know. I don't know. And that's why I've inquired of, of friends of mine who served in various those various administrations and in very, very high places. And it chilled me when they said, I've never heard of these powers. You feel they're telling you the truth? Yes, because I've, these are people I've known for 30, 40 years. That's, even, they, that's they, so chilling. They would have, I can tell you how they would have operated if they, if they knew. Tell me. They would have said, listen, Jared, this, this has to be between us, and we can't talk about it on the telephone. When we get together, I'll explain what I know. They didn't say that. When, when you, you said these secret powers are a blueprint for dictatorship, we're, we're, we're living now, I mean, I'm, I must say, you know, I've lived in this country for three decades. Um, I come, as you might be able to tell, I have a slight accent. I, I, I come from Europe. And I know when people ask me where my accent is from, I just tell them it's affected. But, you know, um, <laughs> it, it, but but here we are, and... Uh, what we witnessed in the last, well, let's say a few days, but really for a long time, uh, is it feels to me that y- your words are not, um, they're not alarmist, they're rather reasonable. Well, I don't, I, I, it doesn't do any good to alarm people if you don't have uh, a, a response. And I don't have a response. The, the only way these secrets are going to be disclosed is under the spotlight of the press and public demand on Congress 
to do something about it. Now, when we talk about dictatorship, we're talking about suspension of the ancient rule of habeas corpus. Right. That is to say, a person cannot be jailed without cause, as laid out before a judge. That's as, that's as central to democracy as anything in the world. That's at risk. Freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, warrants by the courts that enable the police to enter your home and search your property. They suspend those that request, that demand for a judicial warrant. So this is this is one man rule. It's what it amounts to. I, I remember that about two years ago, you you said to Maureen Dowd, I believe also in the New York Times, always keep one thing in mind: nine eleven could have been prevented. What did you mean? It at could that, have. What did you mean at that time? Uh, because certainly you had a role in trying to inform people a whole week before 9-11. And how does, how does that obfuscation, as it were, that, that lack of, of, of looking at what might be possible, apply to this very moment? Well, it wasn't a week. The commission that I co-chaired with the late Senator Warren Rudman of New Hampshire was in existence for two and a half years. And we, our title was the U.S. Commission on National Security for the 21st Century. We started in 1998. We delivered a two-and-a-half-year report to the new president of the United States, George W. Bush, January 31st, 2001. And what our first finding and recommendation was America will be attacked by terrorists using weapons of mass destruction, and Americans will die likely in large numbers on American soil. That's shocking. It really is. Nothing, nothing happened. Nothing happened. And then I met with the national, I continued to, even though our commission was, was disbanded, I continued as I am now with the secret powers to give speeches, write articles and so forth. I gave a speech in Montreal, Canada, oddly enough, to the International Air Transportation Association. And the headline in the Montreal papers the next day was, Art Warns of Terrorist Attacks on America. That was September the 5th, right. 2001. That, that, and I went that, down that, to Washington. That is why I said a week, but forgive me, I, yes. I, 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 I misspoke. But I went down to Washington, and I met with Condi Rice, the National Security Advisor, and I said, please get going on Homeland Security. She said, I'll talk to the vice president about it. Nothing is done. It does sound awfully familiar with what we are living now, would you say? Uh, I would say that. As far as, as you know, what are, what are in fact, the, the legal implications of Trump and the Justice Department using a word like terrorist to describe American protesters? Well, it's we're, as applied to peaceful demonstrations, which are authorized by the Constitution of the United States and protected, it's pure propaganda. Mm. Uh, it's pure political propaganda. If people can't walk down the streets of Washington, D.C. or Denver, Colorado, and protest peacefully, peacefully, 
without being tear gassed or assaulted by police or unmarked military forces, unidentified, and put in unidentified vehicles, then we're halfway towards a police state. You know, I, I, I remember that comment of Mark Twain that he said it's very hard to make predictions, particularly about the future. Yes. And I'm I'm wondering in, in the time that remains for us now, um, how you you think the next two two months and a little bit will go with all the, the worries we have and one of the very big ones for me is a post office. Well, I'm not an alarmist and never have been, except when, when I have proof that there should be alarm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To, to put it bluntly, I think almost anything is possible. There will be voter intimidation in a variety of ways by people lined up to vote particularly in urban areas and particularly in minority precincts. Uh, the president's already announced there'll be 50,000 so-called poll watchers, and I can guarantee you they'll be in Philadelphia and Detroit and in Michigan and Wisconsin and in Florida and elsewhere, and they'll be mostly in minority neighborhoods. And Unidentified poll watchers will be demanding identification from voters. That's illegal. You cannot do that. But they will claim they're officials, election officials, even if they're not. What can so there will be that intimidation. What can one do in, in, in this situation since it's illegal? Is there something one can do? Yes. Demand that elected officials, regardless of party, have free and fair elections. Newspapers can do that. Television can do that. Community leaders can do that. Religious leaders can do that. Education leaders can do that. Business leaders can do that. But they are not doing it. Why? Ask them. <sighs> Mr. Gary Hart, is there, is there something else you would like to add? Is there, you know, <laughs> as I... As I as I sometimes say, is there, is there maybe maybe it's the wrong context to ask this question, but I will nevertheless, if you permit me. Is there is there a shard of hope? Well, of course, the hope is the American people. We have been through difficult times, to say the least. Not just world wars, but our own civil war. Uh, the American American history is not a continuous line upward. It's a jagged line, and we have made mistakes. We have uh, done bad things, particularly where race is concerned. Uh, we have um, conducted political campaigns in ways that shouldn't have been done, and a whole variety of things. So I'm, I'm not naive about my fellow countrymen. But there is deep down a genuineness, a decency, a respect for others, and a commitment to democracy that we must depend on. Some of us are like voices in the wilderness, just trying to get people to begin to pay attention. 
you'd be amazed at the number of people around this country that don't want to think about the election, despite all the publicity, uh, because of the virus, obviously, and the terrible economic condition. But we have to wake the American people up, and I, I'm convinced if and when they wake up, they will not permit treachery in this election. If and when. I, I really I really thank you so much for taking taking my call and and being part of the quarantine tapes as I as I mentioned it's my, to, it's my, as I mentioned to you when my, I when I wrote to you your voice was really important to to, to me and to no, all the listeners you're too kind thank you it's my pleasure thank you so much take care stay safe you too and I hope someday bye bye. we meet bye bye To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support.